The poster was hanging on the wall of a New York subway. It depicted a dignified gentleman recommending a particular product. Someone came along and wanted to deface the advertisement. So with a felt-tip pen, he drew a balloon out of the gentleman's mouth and wrote the words, I like girls. This grammatically challenged graffiti artist misspelled the word girls. Instead of writing G-I-R-L-S, he wrote G-R-I-L-S. I like grills. The second person came along and scratched out the phrase, it's girls, stupid, not grills. Still a third person came along and wanted to weigh in on the subway wall conversation and asked the question, yeah, but what about us grills? This morning, I wonder, what about us grills? What about people that are overlooked, shoved aside, pushed away, marginalized, mistreated, misunderstood? What about us grills? What about people that seem overwhelmed and underappreciated? What about people that appear invisible to their watching world? What about us grills? A grill could be like that 10-year-old boy who's overweight and socially awkward. He's isolated by his friends in the cafeteria. He's ignored on the playground. He's the punchline of their cruel jokes. Whenever it comes time to pair up in class, he's the last one to ever be chosen. If you could ever catch up with this 10-year-old boy, what he'd tell you is that it's hard being a grill. A grill could... Be like that 20-something-year-old young woman who desperately wants to find Mr. Right. She wants to fall madly in love, head over heels, but it seems that no one is giving her the time of day. She's an attractive enough woman. You would think that uh, someone would come along and ask her for a date, but weekend after weekend comes and goes, and she can't meet that eligible bachelor. She gives off the air of confidence, but that's only a facade because there are many nights that she cries herself to sleep. If she would ever open up to you, she would tell you it's hard being a grill. A grill is like that middle-aged man who's 12 years from retirement, but when the economy took a downward turn, so did his employment. Now he's out of a job. He feels like a failure to himself and to his family. To make matters worse, his marriage is on the rocks. And he has the sneaking suspicion that his college-aged daughter is being promiscuous with that deadbeat boyfriend. He's always been taught and told that real men don't cry. But if he were honest with you, he would tell you that there are times as he drives down the interstate in his Ford F-150 and he can't hold back the tears. And stream of tears flood down his cheeks. If you could ever catch him and if he'd open up to you, you know what this middle-aged man would tell you? He would tell you it's hard being a grill. A grill is kind of like that sweet elderly lady who was married to her husband for some 57 years. But last fall, he lost his battle with cancer. And when he died, a part of her died as well. Now she wonders 
she'll ever be able to have any sense of normalcy in her life again. It seems as if life is passing her by and she stands there paralyzed, unable to do anything and not quite knowing what she ought to do. And she wonders if anyone ever sees her. If you ever spoke to this sweet lady, you know what she would tell you? She'd tell you it's hard being a grill. You know what it's like to be a grill? You know what it's like to be overlooked, shoved aside, pushed away, marginalized, mistreated, misunderstood, invisible, and ignored? Do you know what it's like to be a grill? Now, you and I both know that there's no such word as grill. You can't look it up in Webster's Dictionary and find its definition. But the scenarios I just described for you are repeatedly replayed on every corner of the planet. This morning, I want to introduce you to the biggest grill in the gospel. His name is Zacchaeus. His story is told in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. You realize that we are in the midst of a six-part sermon series simply entitled, What on Earth Are We Doing?, whereby we discover our purpose and let it be known this morning that you and I exist to give grace to grills. So I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the Gospel of Luke. Once you've found it, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word, Luke chapter 19. I'll begin at verse 1. I'll read through verse 10. Luke chapter 19, let's begin at verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately for I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. To God be the glory for the great things he has done. You may be seated. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, and he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, and as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, because I'm going to your house today. It's Luke who tells us that Jesus was passing through Jericho. Jericho was a city that was located about 17 miles east of the holy city of Jerusalem. In the days of Jesus, Jericho was a very important city. It was one of the central hubs of the IRS system of the Roman government. Regardless of the culture in which you live, the collection of taxes is a complicated process. Apparently, in the first century, the way the Roman government collected taxes is they, they would give the right to collect taxes to the highest bidder of a particular city, region, or town. Usually, the bid would go to a wealthy Roman citizen. The Bible typically calls that person a publican. 
Now, the publican was not going to get his hands dirty and actually go out door to door and get the taxes from the people. Oh, no. He would hire tax collectors. These tax collectors would be the ones who would physically go out and demand the taxes from the people. Now, the publicans were smart enough to know that it looked like a good idea to employ tax collectors that looked like the people they were going to take the money from. And so they would employ the countrymen or the people living in that particular town. Some areas were so densely populated and the business was so lucrative that it was possible in some areas for a tax collector to then in turn hire other subordinate tax collectors to work for him. In that case, he would be called a chief tax collector. He would work for a publican. He would also have other tax collectors beneath him working for him. So he was a chief tax collector, a middleman of middlemen. You can well imagine that in this system, it was a system that could be easily abused. The Roman government would tell the publican, this is how much money we require from your area. The publican would then pat his own pocket and um, tell the chief tax collector he wanted a little bit more. The chief tax collector would then in turn tell subordinate tax collectors he wanted a little bit more. And then in turn, the tax collectors who were working for the chief tax collector and the publican would go out to the people and demand even more money. You can quickly see how this system was abused because there were no regulations in those days. So whenever the masses saw a tax collector or a chief tax collector, or a publican. They said, here comes a crook. Here comes a thief. Because certainly he's going to want more from me and demand more from me than the Roman government requires. So nobody liked tax collectors. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. And apparently he was pretty good at his job. Because Luke tells us he was wealthy. The word wealthy in the Greek language just simply means bling bling. It simply means that Zacchaeus had everything this world could offer. He had worldly wealth. He had fortune. He had cars. He had houses. He had land. He had possessions. He had everything. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. But he heard that Jesus was coming to his neck of the woods And Zacchaeus wanted to see the celebrity rabbi from Galilee. There were two problems. The first problem was the crowd was so large. At this time of his ministry, Jesus was a crowd favorite. Wherever he went, large crowds gathered around. It's one thing to have to deal with a large crowd, but Zacchaeus had a second problem. And the second problem was an even bigger problem than the first problem. Zacchaeus was vertically challenged. You and I would call him short. I don't know how tall Zacchaeus was, but I do know he was a wee little man. I assume that he never shrunk. I think he's always been short. I don't think that he was 6'5", and then one day he woke up and he was four foot eight. I think he's always been short, and yet because of his size, he was crafty and resourceful. I think that Zacchaeus suffered from what we call LMS, little man syndrome. You know people who suffer from little man syndrome. They're short in stature, but they make it up with a very large, arrogant disposition. That's exactly the demeanor of Zacchaeus. He's crafty. 
He's resourceful. He's always been short, but that's never stopped him. And so on this day, he was not going to be denied. He ran in front of the crowd. He scurried up a sycamore fig tree, and there he was perched, ready to see Jesus from a bird's eye view. We communicate the details of the story as if somehow this behavior is normal. But imagine with me that you and I went to the park today. And in the middle of a beautiful day at the park in the middle of town, you and I saw a well-dressed, wealthy man in a three-piece suit climb a tree. We would have to conclude that's weird. That's odd. We expect to find an eight-year-old boy climbing a tree in the middle of town, but not a well-dressed, wealthy, well-to-do man. Yet that's exactly what Zacchaeus is, and that's exactly what Zacchaeus does. In his sermon on this passage, E.K. Bailey asked a great question. He said, I I wonder what drove this man up that tree. That's a great question. E.K. Bailey concludes that it wasn't the shortage of his stature, but rather the shortage of his relationship with God that drove him up that tree. He didn't climb the tree because he was short. He climbed the tree because he had no relationship with God. He was empty inside. He had everything the world could offer, and yet he was still searching for significance. Zacchaeus was a successful failure. You ever met anybody like that? Successful in every sense of the worldly use of the word, but a failure when it comes to all things that are important, like relationships and family and meaning and significance and even life satisfaction. I don't know if Zacchaeus knew the song, but if he knew it, he would have sung it with Mick Jagger. I can't get no satisfaction. Because I try, and I try, and I try, and I try, but I can't get no boom, satisfaction. You know how it goes. If Zacchaeus knew the song, he would have sung it. He was tired of the feeling in the pit of his stomach. He was weary of being the crook of his countrymen he was tired of being a grill so he climbed the tree that day in the hopes that Jesus just might help Jesus gets to the foot of the sycamore fig tree he looks up and he calls Zacchaeus by name Luke gives us no indication that Zacchaeus and Jesus had ever met prior to this moment And Jesus is the one who initiates this divine encounter, which, by the way, Jesus is always the one who introduces and initiates salvific encounters. Jesus is the one who starts the conversation. Zacchaeus, you come down because I'm going to your house today. And Zacchaeus came down with joy. Have you ever stopped to realize that whenever a person meets Jesus, Joy always results. It's a joy that cannot be hidden. It's a joy that cannot be mistaken. When a person meets Jesus, joy comes over their entire demeanor. They can't hide it. They can't keep it down. You see somebody and you say, hey, I know that's a Jesus guy and I know that's a Jesus girl. I can tell because of the joy that just seeps out of their life. Whenever a person meets Jesus, joy always results. Yet you and I have met Christians, and can we just be real honest this morning? 
There are some believers that just need to tell their face that they're saved. I mean, it's been 37 years since the last time they smiled. They were baptized in prune juice, right? And if you talk to them, they'll say, I love Jesus. I really do. And you think to yourself, well, brother, no wonder evangelism is down in the church today because no lost person wants what you got. And yet when a person meets Jesus, real joy results. You can't hide it. It's a joy that Satan can't snatch. It's, it's a joy that the world can't waste away. It's a joy that pain cannot paralyze. It's a joy that a tornado cannot topple. It's a joy that disease cannot debilitate. It's a joy that sin cannot snuff out. It's a joy that setbacks cannot stifle. It's a joy that cannot be denied. It's a joy that cannot be removed. When you and I meet Jesus, there is total joy. So whenever a person has a true encounter with Christ, there is total joy. Zacchaeus comes down the tree, and he comes down with haste. He comes down with gladness. He had just had an encounter with Jesus, and his life is never going to be the same. He comes down with total joy. Jesus says, I've got to go to your house today. As they're making their way toward the lavish home of Zacchaeus, the crowd begins to speak one to the other. Here goes Jesus again. He's going to be the guest of a sinner. A sinner was a title that was slapped on anybody at a lifestyle that was contrary to the word and will of God. And Jesus had a knack of going home with sinners. Jesus made it his hab a habit and hobby to spend time with sinners. In verse 7, the crowd issues their disgust with Jesus. In verse 8, Zacchaeus issues his delight in Jesus. Look, Lord, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. I think there's a time gap between verse 7 and verse 8. Oh, how I wish that the Holy Spirit would have allowed Luke to record for us the, the conversation that goes on between Jesus and Zacchaeus. Because in verse 7, the crowd is disgusted with Jesus. In verse 8, Zacchaeus is delighted with Jesus. And in between there, there must have been a gospel conversation. The conversation must have gone something like this, where Jesus says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, you do know that you're a sinner. And it's that sin that keeps you far from God. The reason you can't have any satisfaction in life is because your sin has made you dead. Do you know this? Zacchaeus says, yes, Jesus, I, I know. I, I have everything the world can offer, but I'm dead inside. And Jesus says to Zacchaeus, I came for grills just like you. I came to give you life more abundant and free. I came so that if you would believe in me, streams of living water would well up inside of you. The money that you hold in your hand, it will corrode at your death or maybe before. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. But if you believe in me, I'm the crown jewel of heaven. I'm the treasure of eternity. If you believe and trust in me, I promise you, I'll give you a home in heaven with God forever. In order for you to follow me, Zacchaeus, there must be trusting and turning. 
For you must trust Jesus as Savior. You must turn from your wicked ways. For salvation to occur, there must be receiving and repentance. Receiving Jesus as Lord and repenting from our sin. There's always those two things that are going on whenever genuine salvation takes place. And this is what Jesus is talking to Zacchaeus about. And he says to Zacchaeus, hey, I want you to have eternal life. Will you trust and will you turn? Will you receive and will you repent? And because of verse 8, you know without a shadow of a doubt that Zacchaeus responded favorably to the gospel invitation. He said, look, Lord, here and now, I give half my money to the poor. In those days, it was regarded that a Jewish person was generous if he or she gave away 20% of income. Zacchaeus is saying, I'll give away 50% of my income. Now, before the cynic rises up inside of you and says, well, he's a fat cat. He can afford it. Let me ask you, are you willing to give 50% of your income to the Lord today? 50% of anybody's income is a lot of money to that person. It's a great sacrifice. Zacchaeus was one who um, must have gone to vacation Bible school. I'm sure that he went to children's church in the synagogue as he grew up because he knew the Old Testament. Because he says, Lord, not only do I give half my possession to the poor, but if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times the amount. Where does he get that? He gets that from Exodus, from the law of Moses. For Moses says, if you steal your neighbor's sheep, you must return to them and repay them fourfold. And Zacchaeus is beginning to connect the dots and he realizes, hey, listen, I am now a follower of God. And so I have stolen, I've robbed, I've cheated from individuals. So I must pay them back four times the amount. I want to be very clear this morning. I am not saying that Zacchaeus was saved because he gave away a large sum of money. But what I'm clearly saying is that Zacchaeus gave away a large sum of money because he was saved. When you meet Jesus, not only is there total joy, but there's also total transformation. Total transformation. For most of us, the last thing we surrender to God is our checkbook. We cling to our wallet as tightly as we can, and I'm convinced that some people are buried in the ground with the wallet in their hip pocket. But Zacchaeus was totally transformed. Let me be clear. He's not saved because he gave away a large sum of money, but he gave away a large sum of money because he's saved. And so Zacchaeus was totally transformed. Have you ever stopped to realize the difference it makes when we take Jesus home with us? Jesus did not want to stay at the foot of the sycamore fig tree. Jesus did not want to stay in the streets of Jericho. Jesus did not even want to go to the local synagogue or the religious establishment. Jesus wanted to go to the home of Zacchaeus. All the difference it makes when you and I actually take Jesus home with us. For when we take Jesus home, home is that place where decisions are made. Home is that place where relationships are forced. Home is that place where we can let our hair down. Home is that place when we do things when no one else is watching. 
And Jesus knows that if, I, if I'm invited into your home, if I'm invited into your life, if I am in charge of the house, then I'm in charge of all the living. Oh, the difference it makes when you and I actually take Jesus home with us. When we take Jesus home with us, it transforms how we see ourselves. It transforms how we make decisions. It transforms the way we talk to our spouse. It transforms the way we interact with our children. It transforms everything that we do. When you and I actually take Jesus home with us, all the difference it makes in your life and mine. My friend, Jesus does not want to stay in the sanctuary. Jesus does not want to stay in the choir loft. Jesus does not want to stay in the pulpit. Jesus does not want to stay in the street. Jesus does not want to stay at the water cooler. Jesus does not want to stay in the marketplace. Jesus wants to go home with you. And when you and I take Jesus home, I promise you the divorce rate will diminish. I promise you the use of pornography will evaporate. I promise you the frequency of child abuse will be no more. When you and I actually take Jesus home with us, all the total transformation that takes place. Look, Lord, I give away half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times the amount. And Jesus said with a smile on his face today, salvation has come to this house. For this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke writes his gospel for two reasons. He wants to answer two questions. Number one, who is Jesus? Number two, why did he come? In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the answer to both of those pivotal questions are answered. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of Man. To say he's the Son of Man is to imply he's the Son of God. To say he's the son of man and son of God is to say he's the long-awaited Messiah. He's the one about which the prophets foretold. Who is Jesus? He's the son of man. Why did he come? He came to seek and to save the lost. This is the mission of the Messiah. This is the mandate of the master that he gives to you and he gives to me. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we find a central verse in Luke's gospel. It answers the questions, who is Jesus? Why did he come? And he is the son of man who came to seek and to save the lost. Oh, my friend, he came to seek and to save you. And if you are a believer in the Lord, if you have trusted in him as savior, if you are turning from your sin, if you've received him for salvation, if you repented of your sin, oh my friend, then you and I share the same master's mandate. For we are to go and bark up trees. We are to go and to find people just like Zacchaeus who have climbed a sycamore fig tree seeking significance. You do realize that when we walk out these doors, all we have to do is Look around at the trees, and we'll find people just like Zacchaeus. We'll find people that are searching for purpose and meaning in life, for they understand that they are successful failures. There are 206,000 people living in Shelby County, Alabama. There are 659,000 people living in Jefferson County, Alabama. There are 1.1 million people living in the greater Birmingham area today. 
I'm going to go out on a limb here. But I think that many of them are up a tree. I think many of them are up a tree searching for significance, searching for the meaning of life, searching for something, and searching for someone. And we are Jesus guys and Jesus gals. And we tell people, look to the Son of Man. Look to the Son of God, for he came to seek and to save that which is lost. I've asked you before, I'll ask you again. I'll ask you to the point that you get tired of me asking. But the question is, who are you trying to reach this week? If someone doesn't come to your mind in less than three seconds, then my friend, you are not being intentional enough. Who are you trying to reach? I need to let you in on a little secret. As a church staff, we have asked of the Lord to add 200 people to this faith family in 2015. That number of 200 is greater than the previous two years combined. And yet, I believe that, num that number is so attainable for this congregation. Let me tell you why. Some of you also realize that before I came on March the 1st, I was talking about you behind your back. I was praying to you and to the Lord and I said, God, will you please, if it's your will, will you please add 50 people to First Baptist Pelham before Easter? So between March the 1st and April the 5th, which is next Sunday, will you please add 50 people to your church? Well, you know that we've been together for about four weeks, and to date there have been 34 people that have been added to the church, praise the Lord. When you take that number of 34 and you add it to the 19 that have already been uh, added to the church in January and February, that gives you a total before today's count of 53 individuals, 53 people within the first quarter of 2015. You extrapolate that out over the next three quarters, and you and I are quick in math, and we understand that that number exceeds 200 in 2015. All my friends, all we have to do is go outside and look up in trees. All we have to do is go around, open our eyes and look around and we'll find people just like Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus is all around us and all we have to do is just give grace to grills. It was D.T. Niles who said of evangelism, it is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's what evangelism is. We're just introducing our friends, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors. We're just introducing them to Jesus. We're telling them that Jesus is the Son of Man who came to seek and to save what was lost. And even though a person might be lost, in Christ they are found. This sermon is entitled, A Man Up a Tree. And I realize that for many of you, you think to yourselves, well, that must refer to Zacchaeus. Before I sit down, I've got to tell you, there was another man who climbed another tree. This other man who climbed another tree, climbed it not in the center of town, but right outside of town. This other man who climbed another tree outside of town was not in Jericho, but was in Jerusalem. This other man who climbed another tree, not in the middle of town, but outside of town in the city of Jerusalem, climbed a cross made of wood and died in your place and mine. This other man is none other than Jesus the Christ. And Jesus died 
so that he, the innocent, might be declared guilty, so that we, the guilty, might be declared innocent in the sight of God. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. Jesus died on that cross that day, not because he had done anything wrong, but he died as your substitute and as my substitute. And Jesus drank every last drop of the holy hostility that God should pour out against you and against me was squarely shouldered upon Jesus and Jesus writhed in pain, and Jesus gave up his ghost, and Jesus died, and Jesus was placed into a borrowed tomb, and on the third day, Jesus rose again. And Jesus rose to give healing and to help. For this man on that tree gives help to the helpless. This man on that tree gives hope to the hopeless. This man on that tree gives mercy to the marginalized. This man on that tree gives salvation to the sinner. This man on that tree gives strength to the sanctified. This man on that tree gives grace to grills. When I stop and think about this man on that tree, I've got to stop, stand, sing, shout, and say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. For when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Oh, church, why on earth are we here? We are here because we've received grace and we are here to give grace to grills that are all around us for we have been saved by God. So what on earth are we doing? Some of you are here this morning because Jesus wants to have a divine encounter with you. He's going to initiate the conversation with you. He'll call you by name. He'll tell you to come down out of that tree that you've concocted. He'll tell you that he wants to go home with you. He wants you to respond in total joy and total transformation. My friend, if you're here and you have never trusted Jesus you've never turned from your sin, then today, I invite you, come down out of that tree. Many of you are here this morning and you're believers in Christ. This morning, I challenge you to share the good news gospel with somebody this week. Share it with somebody. Our, our friend, Sammy Gilbreth, told me a quote just the other day. He says, it's only good news if they hear it in time. It's only good news if they hear it in time. So this week, let us be bold. And this week, let us be courageous. And this week, let's give grace to grills. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, we give you this invitation. I look out across this crowd and, Lord, I, I see grills. I see people that are in desperate need of you. I look in the mirror and <laughs> I see that a grill stares me back every morning.
So Lord, I pray that today, if there's one who does not know you as Savior, this will be the day of their salvation. For those of us who are saved, let us be serious about evangelism. Let us be eager to tell others that you are the Son of Man who came to seek and to save that which is lost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.